0: What happened is, because of people that might know a case named Melendez Diaz, which is some litigation that came out of Massachusetts courts, went up to the United States Supreme Court, because of that case and because of some other things, there was a strain, and because of the war on drugs, I'll also say, there was a strain put on these forensic drug testing labs. So there was actually some consolidation that was happening. The state police were going to be, labs were moving around, I'll say, and sort of consolidating. When that happened, some things, some behaviors and practices that were not particularly appropriate obviously started to come into light where no one had really taken much notice of them before
1: it's not unique to have forensic fraud but i would say that of the problems that that i've you know encountered in my research i would say forensic fraud is by far the least common of the big problems that i believe plague Uh, police crime labs but it does happen and has happened in other places as well is it a result of the war on drugs you know i would say not really personally i don't think that that's really the cause of it this happened to be in a drug lab but we've seen forensic fraud in in other um, disciplines within forensic labs you know it could be in serology dna whatever different areas so it's certainly not unique to drug labs
2: Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network.
3: Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites. Also co-host another Legal Talk Network program called Law Technology Now with Monica Bay. And I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. Before we get to today's topic, let me just take a moment to thank our sponsors, Clio and Letera. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice try it for free at clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. And Latera is the authority on document creation, collaboration, and control. Increase your productivity, collaborate securely, and ensure protection of your vital information. Learn all about it at www.latera.com. Well, on April 18th, the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts dismissed more than 21,000 drug cases connected to the drug lab scandal that involved Annie Dukin, a former chemist of a crime lab in Massachusetts, who admitted to falsifying evidence. By many accounts, there's never been such a large-scale dismissal of cases in a single swoop in the history of the United States.
4: And Bob, after an investigation into Annie Dukin, and her work at the Hinton State Laboratory Institute. She admitted to altering and faking tests in order to cover up her frequent dry labbing or visually identifying samples without actually testing them over her eight-plus years career. The cases involved defendants from eight different counties in Massachusetts, and in many instances, people had been already sent to jail and some even deported.
3: So while the uh, scope of this drug lab scandal is... Perhaps unprecedented, it's certainly not the first such scandal in our country. There have been other drug lab scandals, including in Houston, St. Paul, Oklahoma City, and San Francisco, among other places. Today, on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at what happened here in Massachusetts and its impact on drug cases, attorneys, defendants, and uh, talk more about what goes on inside a crime lab. To help us do that today, we have two guests. First of all, let me welcome to the program Carl Williams. Carl is Staff attorney for the ACLU of Massachusetts. He was previously a criminal defense attorney with Roxbury Defenders Unit of the Committee for Public Counsel Services. Carl and his colleagues at the ACLU of Massachusetts uh, represented the petitioners, uh, thousands of people in these cases affected by the drug lab scandal, and it was their work that brought about this, uh, the results that we're, we're going to be talking about today. So, uh, welcome to lawyer, lawyer Carl Williams.
0: Thank you. Thanks
4: for having me. And, Bob, we want to note here that we have reached out to the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts as well as the Cape and Island District Attorney's Office, but both were unavailable as of our showtime. We hope to have them on our future show. But in the meantime, our next guest is Sandra Garrett Thompson. She is the director of the Criminal Justice Institute at the University of Houston Law Center. Since joining the faculty in 1990, she's taught and written in the areas of criminal law, criminal procedure, wrongful convictions, and evidence. And back in 2015, Sandra wrote a book entitled Cops in Lab Coats, Curbing Wrongful Convictions with Independent Forensic Laboratories. Well, Welcome to the show, Sandra.
1: Thanks. Nice to be here.
3: Carl, we could probably spend uh, the entire show talking about the Annie Dukin case and the series of events that led up to the latest developments in this case. It's almost uh, worthy of a John Grisham novel in some ways. But I, I wonder if you could... For our listeners who aren't familiar with what happened here and how we got to this point, if you could give us kind of the nutshell version of, of what happened with Dukin.
0: Um, so what happened is, in 2003, a forensic chemist that worked at a, a laboratory testing alleged drug samples for in criminal cases began doing four different things. One, what is called dry labbing, that is just looking at a sample that is believed to be drugs and making a guess at what it, what it was. When she was actually supposed to be doing a chemical test on that, it's called a GCMS test. So she was dry labbing. She was also sometimes adding weight to samples. So when a sample was maybe 98 grams, and if it were over 100 grams, prosecution would be, there would be a much more serious uh, sentencing regime. She would add weight to samples. She also tainted samples. That is, at one point she put cocaine in a heroin sample, so we test positive for heroin. And she also lied about her credentials, and she also perjured herself on the stand um, in relation to these cases, saying, yes, I did test that. Yes, it was 100 grams of cocaine, somewhat based on those other three things I mentioned. So she was doing that, those things over eight years, from 2003 to 2011. That affected tens of thousands of cases. Five years ago, the ACLU of Massachusetts demanded that all of the relevant county prosecutors dismiss these cases because due process wasn't afforded to these people. People were not aware of the fact that this you know, this behavior was going on in their cases. The relevant district attorneys chose not to do that. Two years after that, about three years ago now, we filed a petition to this, our Supreme Judicial Court representing three clients who were affected by this drug lab scandal and asked the same thing, said that these cases should be dismissed. It took us basically two series of litigations to finally get to a point where the SJC, our Supreme Judicial Court, told DAs that they needed to come up with a very substantial list um, from these folks to dismiss a very substantial amount of them and then to decide what of those cases they believed that they could re-prosecute. Um, and that's what happened uh, just this week. Um, DAs came up with a list of 20, uh, almost 22,000 cases to be dismissed and 319 cases that they choose to re-prosecute. So that's where we are today, and that's what we believe that to be the largest dismissal of criminal cases um, based on one court filing in the history of the United States. I, we might be wrong about that, but from what we understand, it's the largest.
3: And, and just to follow up on that, can I just ask how it came to light, what Dukin had been doing?
0: Right. So it, it didn't for quite a while, like I said, the eight years. But what happened is because of people that might know a case, Melendez-Diaz, which is a, some litigation that came out of Massachusetts courts, went up to the United States Supreme Court. Because of that case and because of some other things, there was a strain, and because of the war on drugs, I'll also say, there was a strain put on these forensic drug testing labs. So there was actually some consolidation that was happening. The state police were going to be, labs were moving around, I'll say, and sort of consolidating. When that happened, some things, some behaviors, some practices that were not particularly appropriate, obviously, started to come into light where no one had really taken much notice of them before. And once some of those came to light, a lot of um, defense attorneys started asking questions, saying, hey, does that affect my case? And initially, it was the district attorney said that it was limited to only one county in a very small number of cases. And then through discovery process, this defense attorneys started um, pulling up more and more of that. And then there was ultimately a prosecution of Miss Dukin in uh, one of our superior courts, and she was sentenced to some prison time for her actions.
4: So Sandra, is this unique to Massachusetts, or is is this something that we see nationwide and how does the war on drugs play into this
1: well uh it's it's not unique to have forensic fraud but i would say that of the problems that that i've you know encountered in my research, I would say forensic fraud is by far the least common of the big problems that I believe plague uh, police crime labs. But it does happen and has happened in other places as well. Is it a result of the war on drugs? You know, I would say not really. Personally, I don't think that that's really the cause of it. This happened to be in a drug lab, but we've seen forensic fraud in in other um, disciplines within forensic labs. You know, it could be in serology, DNA, whatever, different areas. So it's certainly not unique to drug labs.
3: What kinds of protections are there? What kind of oversight is there over these drug labs generally, Sandra? I mean, uh, Mm -hmm. clearly in this case, uh, the Dukin case, there were inadequacies in oversight and what was going on. It looked like there were some red flags that were being ignored, as I I understand the case. How do we know this isn't going on on a much greater level?
1: Well, that's a wonderful question. And I would, you know, I would say that there's, there are a few things, right? So you have supervisors within labs, and uh, you know, they should be the first line of defense. There should be quality managers um, who are establishing standard operating procedures and making sure that those things are followed. I mean, there are lots of layers of protections that should be in place. And increasingly, you know, we see labs becoming accredited, and the accreditation standards for those labs have been increased as well. Because of things like Annie Dukin, because of, you know, the Houston Police Department Crime Lab, and a lot of the scandals that have happened around the country, which, which, by the way, have... Um, also been discovered via DNA exonerations in really serious cases. right? So all of these scandals have brought so much attention to the the police crime labs, that they've had to go back and increase standards for accreditation. Uh, So hopefully some of this stuff gets caught. But if you have a dysfunctional lab and you don't have these controls in place, which was what was going on in Massachusetts, then you're right. I mean, she might not have been the only one. And there may have been others in other labs that, you know, have not come to light as of yet.
4: So, Carl, what's the remedy for this? Are we going to be seeing public defenders asking for independent labs to be established so that they can cross-check these crime labs?
0: So, I I think there's a a number of types of remedies, certainly just uh, public defenders. I worked for the public defender system for many years in, in Massachusetts and defended many of these cases before we knew what was happening and some afterwards. One thing I'll just mention is There is another drug lab scandal going on in Massachusetts where tens of thousands of cases were affected. A woman who was addicted to drugs, her name was Sonia Farak, and that is is brewing now, right? And I would, just to back up a little bit, this is a result of the war on drugs because if we saw this type of behavior for eight years in any other field – where people were not being treated like the grist of the mill, right? People who are just, who are treated as non-human beings, people who you just lock up, mostly black people, mostly brown people, mostly almost all poor people. This never would have happened. Think of if this was a, you know, legal ethics investigator and someone came out with a fake report on me. We would sue them. They would stop. They would be fired. They may be imprisoned. If it were about anything else, this would not have happened. I actually did an interview about five years ago and someone said, well, do you think this kind of thing is endemic to the war on drugs? I said, of course it is. And I said, you will see another thing like this happen in a few years, probably not of this size, but you'll see another thing happen. And that was, I don't, that did happen, right? There is this other, this Amherst drug lab scandal. And there are a number of other evidence scandals. There's a woman who was stealing drugs and guns, a police officer, allegedly a police officer in Brintree, stealing drugs and guns from an evidence warehouse and doing whatever with them. Drugs, guns, money, clothing. She had clothing from the evidence warehouse at her house. So I think these things happen more when we're dealing with populations that are considered throwaway in our society, and that is black people, brown people, and poor people.
3: So who was it who was turning a blind eye to this situation? Was it the the courts, the prosecutors, the defense attorneys, everybody
0: Yes, the system, because the system looks at this prosecutors, defense attorneys, judges, police, police investigators, uh, jailers, to everyone this, they said, oh, that's another another black person going into the system. Looks like a drug dealer to me. Makes sense. Don't give them the mandatory minimum, but we'll give them half of it. And when the person said, hey, what about this? Why don't we look into this? And some of these people, some of these drug tests actually had come back. There are some that came back negative. Right? We've seen negative certs that people were n- never informed of later.
3: So I was just going to ask, Sandra, what's your impression of that? I mean, this idea that the system turns a blind eye to a lot of these cases because they just assume these people are are guilty.
1: I think there's a lot of truth to that, absolutely. And I think, you know, that, that Carl and I are not actually disagreeing on a lot of things. I would say, though, that, that it's not just the war on drugs, that it's a broader concern about – laboratories associated with police departments, you know, that are headed by a police chief uh, or some, you know, head of a law enforcement agency of some sort who's maybe not really qualified to run a lab and where analysts view themselves as, you know, working for the police, you know, to get convictions. And, I, you know, I would just say that it's a broader concern than just the drug crimes because we see the same kind of of bias and lack of funding within departments and lack of proper controls that allows for thefts and for frauds to go undetected. You know, all of these things are endemic to crime labs and they affect all kinds of cases. I mean, it so happens that we have thousands and thousands of drug cases. So when you have an Annie dukin or when you have someone who's stealing drugs, which is another, it's a different kind of problem in a drug lab but it also occurs, you don't have a well-managed laboratory where these things are going to be um, caught, and that has been a a big problem with police crime labs. But I would say that it's not just in the drug cases, it's in lots of cases where we see we've had all kinds of exonerations in many different areas, rapes, murders, robberies, because the evidence wasn't very good. Whose fault is it? I agree, it's the system. It's not only the... The courts and the prosecutors, but it's the defense attorneys who also, you know, everyone sort of gave the forensic analysts a pass and assumed that whatever results that they gave were correct, and and now we're having to, you know, take a step back and really reconsider this.
4: So, Carl, how does this play into the overall view and some way, I guess, perhaps an old saw that cops have a script when they get onto the stand and they know what to say and testify accordingly in order to get convictions?
0: I mean, I think that's, so you're talking about in how, how that works with analysts?
4: No, I mean, how does the, the concept of just do anything to get a conviction, do we see this throughout the system on the enforcement side?
0: I mean, we see this now with these cases, people, even though these, you know, almost 22,000 cases are getting dismissed, we hear a prosecutor saying, well, these are bad guys. These are bad guys. And I'll I'll just sort of, you know, folks may not know, 60% of these cases of the original 24,000 cases, 60% of those cases were people who possessed drugs, simply possessed drugs. And We're living in a state that believes, you know, there's a problem with the opioid crisis. I would say there's a problem with, you know, crises with other drugs also, but we're imprisoning, we're probationing, we're arresting people who use drugs, who just use drugs. 60% of these people were people who use drugs and 90% of these people were people in the lower courts, our juvenile district and municipal courts. So these weren't the most serious cases. Only 10% of them were ever indicted and also Uh, you know, put out that a a number of these cases were children were people who were child offenders. And uh, I think that when we look at who gets prosecuted to pull out to the bigger picture, who gets prosecuted for crimes in Massachusetts and who gets, who commits those crimes, we know that who uses drugs and who buys and sells drugs across the United States. That is people buy drugs from people who are like them racially, economically and geographically, and people sell drugs to people who are like them economically, racially, um, and geographically. But we don't, that's not who we see arrested for these charges. And I think that goes to a, a very deep problem, actually agreeing with what other folks, to a very deep problem in our criminal justice system that is deeply focused on race, deeply.
4: Well, before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsors.
3: Bob? Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up at their website, clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com, with the code L2L10, that's L2L, the number 10. Documents are the currency of business. They represent you in every business interaction. Executives need to know what changes have occurred in documents, what metadata risks exist, and how to encrypt, share, and collaborate securely. Patera simplifies the document creation and collaboration process to protect you from risk and loss of reputation. Patera offers better solutions for document lifecycle management so you can focus on doing what really matters www.latera.com
4: And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams with Bob Ambrosi, and I today is Carl Williams, the staff attorney for the ACLU of Massachusetts, and Sandra Garrett Thompson, the director of the Criminal Justice Institute at the University of Houston Law Center. We've been discussing the drug lab scandal in Massachusetts that led to the dismissal of over twenty one thousand tainted drug cases. And Sandra, in the scheme of dismissals that are occurring, what happens in the situations where the dismissal essentially amounts to a technicality from the standpoint that the defendant actually was guilty?
1: Well, I mean, it should allow the person to have their record expunged, uh, you know, and and if... You know, if the jurisdiction also has some kind of law that provides for compensation for a person who's wrongly convicted, then they might be entitled to compensation as well, perhaps. But, um, you know, otherwise, if you've already served the time, there's not much that can be done about that other than some kind of compensation.
3: Well, Carl, what about that? I mean, from what I've read, this dismissal of these 21,000 or more cases. In, in some ways, is is just the start of another phase of this. It sounds like there's an issue about actually reaching all of the affected uh, defendants. Of there are other cases that still remain to be possibly uh, adjudicated in some way. Um, so, what what happens from here going forward with these cases?
0: Well, I'll just say we um, Massachusetts doesn't really have a process for expungement at all, unless you can actually prove that it was mistaken identity, like your, you know, your twin brother did it or something. So there isn't a possibility for expungement for these folks unless the law changes. And as to, I'm in a little bit of a tough position in terms of talking about compensation for folks. I don't want to say, Hey, yes, call me, but uh, people can certainly seek counsel. If they want to talk to a lawyer to take that up or, or if they want to you know file something themselves um, people can certainly try to uh, look into that. I think there's some couple of hurdles to get over, but but that's things people can look into. I will say some of these folks have been deported, right? Some people are you know in Cape Verde or Dominican Republic or you know or Haiti because these convictions led to their deportation from the United States, and the idea that you know the egg is cracked, you know, putting it back together doesn't exactly work for some of these folks. Um, And then there are also lower levels of, you know, community-based or collateral consequences that are affecting these people. You know, people lost their licenses, people um, lost their jobs, people's families uh, had to move out of public housing because of these charges. And it's not just, oh, you know, go back and reapply for the job or go back and, you know, for those years that you couldn't drive a car, go back and be able to right people had to dramatically change their lives because they were affected by these these tainted convictions
3: and what's the process even for letting them all know I mean do they all know at this point or have they all been reached or is there an effort on going to contact them all
0: no and yes uh, they haven't all they all do not know and you know if we think that you know some people out of state some people out of the countries we're aware that some some people have passed away it seems to actually now to be the position of the district attorneys not to dismiss the cases of the people who are dead so uh, there will be mailings uh, to folks to let them know. Uh, we're also talking about doing you know, some... We have actually put out a lot of stuff on, on social media to let people know about this. And uh, there actually is a, um, a hotline that people can call at the Committee for Public Counsel Services, um, has a number of people can call into to find out if they are one of the people whose cases have been, has been dismissed or one of the people who the case uh, is going to try to be re-prosecuted. And... People can contact the public defender, that's uh, the Committee for Public Counsel Services here in Massachusetts, to find out. You know They have a database, and they can look up someone's name and say, yes, you know your case from 2006 was dismissed. Congratulations. Um, and I think that's important because if people are facing those consequences because they say, oh, I you know, have this conviction from back in the day, it might, I might not want to apply for that job, or I might not want to be able to try to get a barber's license because I have a felony conviction. Knowing that is very important information.
4: Sandra, as far as the notice issues are concerned, would it be appropriate for a civil class action for all of these 21,000 individuals and then the court to order some type of private investigator perhaps to be involved in order to be able to notify everybody? I mean, how do you remedy the notice situation? And as part of that question, we'd like to take this moment to wrap up and get your final thoughts as well as your contact information so our listeners can reach out to you. Thank you.
0: Sure.
1: Well, with regard to getting notice out, it's a real challenge and we really haven't developed uh, good procedures for doing that. I think in Texas, um, we see district attorneys sending out thousands of letters, letting people know that cases have been affected and that they should, and actually telling them that they should call the public defender's office. But, you know, this is a big challenge for a system as to whether they can file a lawsuit. You know, that's really um, a matter that's better addressed by your other guests, but, you know, I'm I'm happy to talk to people if they're interested in how we're handling this in Texas, and I can be reached at the University of Houston Law Center. Um, my email address is sg, as in girl, Thompson, T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N, at central.uh.edu.
4: Great. Well, thank you very much. We'll toss it over to you, Carl, as well, to wrap up and get your final thoughts as well as your contact information.
0: I think that the really key thing to look at here is that, that this is about essential parts of the criminal justice system and how we meet out justice in the United States. And at different points, we see pressure points and we see things sometimes pop. This is one of those or two of those places where the system popped and I think we need to be on the lookout for these. I think we need to challenge what is happening in these, I don't want to say individual instances, but these mass instances, but also the way the system runs in general, because Injustices occur. They lead to, you know, the mass incarceration system that we see in the United States, where you know we incarcerate more people per capita than anywhere else in the world. Um, and this is one of the pieces. This is one of this is like on the factory line of that. So we at the ACLU of Massachusetts are committed to, you know, when we see these uh, types of injustices, when we see these challenges to due process, that we're going to fight like hell against them. And in that, if people can get in touch with me. You can find us online at the ACLUM ACLUmassachusetts.org Massachusetts dot org. People can find me online on Twitter at, uh, at Carlton Williams and Williams at aclum.org.
4: Great. Well, thank you very much. That brings us to the end of our show. I'm Craig Williams with my co-host, Bob Ambrosie. Thank you for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer.
2: Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer. Produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes.